This episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who donated $1 a month through Craft Sanity's Patreon page. Learn more at CraftSanity.com. Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing and knit and paint and dance and spin would you go crazy well if you're going crazy here's something amazing to help you keep it together one two craft sanity craft sanity Hello and welcome to episode 181. I'm really excited to bring you a conversation that I recorded recently with Clara Parks. She is the author of the new book, Knitlandia, A Knitter Sees the World. Clara has written several other titles as well, and we're going to talk about those too. One of the cool things about Clara is she is a wonderful storyteller, and she most both verbally and also in the written form. So uh, this is going to be a real treat, folks. Uh, she even is going to do a reading for us. Many of you probably know Clara from her very popular knittersreview.com website, and it's a newsletter where she talks about yarn a lot and, and the tools of the trade in knitting. And so we're going to talk about that as well. And this is a really fun podcast in that she's going to tell the story of how she transitioned from writing about travel and tech to writing about yarn and the tools that she loves to use. I mean, to get to talk about knitting all the time and then starting her own line of yarn, Clara Yarn, and how she uses that yarn line to finance her writing. I mean, this is this is a genius plan. So you're going to want to take some notes on this one, I think, because this this is really a cool story. So I had a great time listening to Clara's story, and I hope you do too. This would be a great time to grab a knitting project. And uh, if you don't knit, that's fine. Grab whatever project you're working on and settle in. And before we jump into the interview, I want to thank ACS Home and Work for their continued support of the podcast. I also want to thank my Patreon sponsors for keeping the show going. Thank you so much. Every little bit helps, and I really do appreciate it. Okay, so let's get to the interview. How did you set upon this path of, of writing and, and knitting? Did you learn these both these things as a small child and think, I'm going to write books and, and knit all the time and write about that? <laughs> yeah. I, the two were not at all connected, really. I, I, I knew from a very early age that I adored words, and whatever it was that I wanted to do in the world, it would involve me at a table, of course, this is back then, with a typewriter, <laughs> um, you know, looking out the window, surrounded by books and doing something with words. So that I knew. My grandma was a, an avid knitter. Her mother was British. And she was just like, she did the tiny gauge sweaters with perfect fitted shaping. It just, it looked sculptural. It was exquisite, like the kind of sweater that you would buy in a store. And when I was visiting them in... Um, the first year of high school, it was a really difficult adjustment for me. I went from a junior high where I knew everybody and, you know, I was mm -hmm. in the drama club and everybody thought I was funny. And then I, 
I went to this, this, um, I hate to use, it was a, a high school for people who were kind of on the smart end and got picked on. So you call it like a gifted high school, but it was, it was like where all the geeks went. And so suddenly it was like academically challenging beyond anything that I'd done before. And I didn't know anybody and I still hadn't found the drama club yet. And, um, so my mom said, let's, let's take her back to Maine and have a Christmas with my parents, her grand, her parents. And um, I spotted my grandma's yarn and her needles by the fireplace. And something, you know, when you're like, I must have that chocolate cake. And you, <laughs> like I became hellbent on getting her to teach me how to knit. And she was just beginning her decline. She had dementia. Oh, so it, it, it was like, but knitting is such a body memory that yes. she very easily, she could teach me the knit stitch. I never learned the purl stitch from her. <laughs> we didn't get there, <laughs> but I left there with a garter stitch scarf that just, I like, it was like an energy that when you plug into it, you can't stop. Mm -hmm. Like you have to keep the energy going. And right. so I knit it all the way home. I knit it until I managed to make that adjustment. In you know, it was like maybe a month later where I really finally found my pace. So for me, knitting represents like a very uh, pivotal moment where it helped me in a vital way, kind of adjust and and cope. So so there was that, but that was not at all related to my words. <laughs> um, so then we fast forward, beep 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 beep, many years. <laughs> To um, after college, and I majored in really useful subjects, art history and French. It was a double major. <laughs> very, very high career aspirations. <laughs> um, but no, and I didn't know anybody who was actually doing what they'd studied in college. So I thought, why, why try to, you know, why try to be practical? Just pick something that, that really builds general skills in a liberal arts way and, and figure it out later. So, um, plus I got to sit in a dark room and look at paintings of naked people. What's wrong with that? <laughs> um, so I had gone to France and I'd taught English there and that was kind of a placeholder while I tried to figure myself out. And then I had work in San Francisco writing. I just fell into this great fake travel writing position at the very, very beginnings of the internet. Um, got to write about events and, and restaurants and museums and things like that. Um, and that was a super, super job. And then I fell in love with my coworker who then became promoted. And it was like, this person was going to be my boss and that's never a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I looked around for a while, like, well, what else can I do? And I was kind of burning out of the blurb. You know, there's only so long you can write 50 words about Neil Diamond before you're like, oh. <laughs> so <laughs> that was when I shifted into high tech publishing, which I know nothing about. And, but it really, what they needed was somebody who understood words. So every time I tried to quit, they'd give me a raise or a promotion or a new title. <laughs> And you know, when you're 20 something and people keep like, well, we'll make you associate editor. Well, we'll make your editor at large. <laughs> you're like, wow, well, this is great. My grandparents respect me. So you do it, but yet part of your soul might be kind of quietly suffocating. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, you're talking to a woman who put her soul into a glove compartment. Like, I, I pull into the parking lot and, like, it's like, okay, pop out the soul, put it in the glove compartment, go into the job, and then pop it back in when I left. Yeah, I know. I understand a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, th I, I think a lot of people out there, it, that's, it just breaks my heart when I drive by big office buildings and I think about how many people are in there. Well, their souls how, how, are in their glove compartments. Yeah. <laughs> we should just drive through the parking lot, counting the souls in the cars. Um, yeah. And for me, it just, it got to the point, well, at, at the peril to that time, I discovered there was a yarn store not too far away. So that made the job a little more appealing. Yeah. So I started going there at lunchtime and, you know, lunchtime expanded from 30 minutes to an hour to an hour and a half. Um, and I really fell in love with knitting again. And parallel to that, some other stuff was happening and my partner and I decided, same person, see? So it was a good leap. Um, we decided, you know what? San Francisco, this was right as the bubble was happening, the first dot-com bubble. And it was, um, I don't know what, if you have experience with this, but like this this place where what's happening in the outside world is really messing with your own values. Oh, yeah. Kind of, yeah, like like tempting them in a weird way. Like suddenly I was thinking, yeah, I should buy a blah, 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 blah. Or just like, <laughs> it, like no, no. And then my fundamental, with everything, it's always been, if I won the lottery, I would not buy a penthouse. I would buy an island in Maine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we decided, you know what, we need a really big life exfoliation. So we packed up the car and moved across the country to Portland, Maine. And what year was that when you made the, that move? This was 98. And everybody thought we were crazy. Oh, 97 or 98. See? Can't even remember now. Um, people thought we were crazy. And we were crazy. If we had bought back then, we'd be sitting pretty. But no regrets, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it re really was like um, I worked very hard to like I paid off all my debts, clean slate, had some freelance contracts, and let's just do this. Let's see what life can be when you're not so engaged in this daily machine of get up early, get in the car, sit in traffic, get, put your soul in the glove compartment, sit in meetings all day with, you know, Oracle executives who are telling you about their cross platform relational, you know, database <laughs> management system, <laughs> which is very valuable technology. It just didn't, eh, it didn't really make sense to me. Um, so, so we moved to Maine and that was when, suddenly the balance shifted where, you know, when you have, I feel like we all have a certain number of pieces to our puzzle. Mm -hmm. And, and when a pivotal number of them tips toward a certain degree, everything can shift. And suddenly everything was shifting more toward uh, less pressure and more possibility for creativity and, you know, expression and not not feeling like, well, I can't do that if I don't have a job doing X. Um, and this was as the beginning, the beginnings of kind of online communities. And for one of my freelance contracts, I was doing, I was basically doing this. I was managing product reviews um, for a technology website. I was doing an email newsletter, working on really building a dialogue and a community. Mm -hmm. And I loved those tasks. I just didn't understand what they were. Like, it was about a printer <laughs> or a monitor. Um, and a friend, one of my colleagues, his wife was a quilter. So he actually introduced the idea. He decided he was going to start a quilter's review. 
And I said, oh, my God, Charlie. (laughs) Wow. Because I'm not a designer, per se. There are so many more gifted designers out there. But I love the materials. I love yarn itself as an object to study, just holding infinite potential. And and there's a story behind it. And there's nuance. And there's an experience to it. And I could just sit and study a skein of yarn and find a whole world in there. I had the idea in May of 2000 and like the next day I owned knittersreview.com and I had the website figured out. (laughs) You know, when something's ready to come, it just comes. Oh yeah. Um, And September 1st was when I launched it and it was a weekly email newsletter and companion website dedicated to reviewing yarns and also needles not just like, this is a pretty needle, but <laughs> how wood needles behave differently than metal needles? And what type of wood? Is it going to be a, you know, a stalk needle? Is it a bamboo? Or how does cherry behave differently than walnut? Does the density impact how the yarn feels when it moves across? Just like getting really, really geeky. At the beginning, it was just for pleasure. I, I had no business plan whatsoever. I just wanted to put it out there and see if anybody else, you know, like putting out a little beacon and do I get mm-hmm. an answer? Does anybody? Yeah. And and how did that, I mean, were you still doing your freelance contracts? Oh yeah. Okay. So you were still doing writing about technology yep. and, and, and doing that. And so how did this change your knitting? Were you knitting more and thinking, I got to do this for my newsletter or for, you know, I got to, I got to make sure I have something to write about. So I must knit. Uh, and, and of course you like to knit. So this, did you just feel like you could justify spending more time doing something you really loved? Oh yeah. Well, it, it, it also, yeah, it justified my passion, but it justified going at it from a really, a far deeper place than (laughs) I'm knitting a hat. Right. And, and it justified buying a single skein. I remember this was the era where yarn stores would still be like, you're buying one skein of this. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> and and you know and nobody knew what knitters review was. It's been, it took years, maybe even 7 8 years. I still some people don't know what knitters review is. And I would say, "Well, I'm just going to swatch it and see what I think." What? <laughs> like, but if you bought two, you'd get a hat, you know, make a pair of mittens, do something. Are you crazy? Um but it just it it shifted it from just pleasure to kind of a scientific journalistic study. I had so many ideas and there were so many people. When I told people this was going to be weekly, everybody, the big response was, how are you possibly going to have enough to say on a weekly basis? And it was more, how do I limit myself to just one subject per week? There was so much that needed to come out at that point. And I remember like thinking way back then, wow, if I, if I ever hit 10,000 subscribers that will be like, I could retire. <laughs> Never mind that they're free subscribers. <laughs> you would just feel so accomplished that you would yeah. immediately retire. <laughs> yeah, somehow like the number 10,000 felt like, well, Oprah will knock on your door at that point. Something will happen. Um, and and it, suddenly there were the 10,000 and then it became 15 and 20 and 25. And now I'm at 35,000 awesome. wonderful knitters who are not just seeking free patterns but really curious and passionate about the materials that they're using, which is a really gratifying thing to see grow out there. Oh, it's wonderful. And at what point did this become your job? 
to do uh, this? I believe it was 2004 or 2005, my last big freelance gig. There reached this point where it was so all-consuming because a year into it, I launched a forum, which became, I mean, the world was ready for Ravelry, but Ravelry wasn't there yet. Right. And so people descended upon my forum and that became there tens of tens and tens of thousands of people. And so that became all encompassing. Anytime there was an argument, anytime we had a spammer, anytime we had complaints, that was my deal. And so I think it was like 2003 or 2004, I was really no longer able to do a really good job with my, my last big freelance gig. You know, you know, when you know, you're just not hundred percent there anymore. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And so the contract came up and we sort of agreed mutually, eh, you know, it's not you. Well, it is you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so then I suddenly found myself, yeah, that knitters review was my job. And, um, that first year, it's really weird to be just like, it was a 60, 70 hour work week. And yet I hadn't figured out the economics of it yet. And I just remember getting a letter from the state of Maine offering me assistance and my property tax payments. <laughs> because, oh, wow. And, and I, that it, that's what it took for me to realize, Ooh, right. Uh, I gotta, that, no, I have to do something about this. This isn't how it should be. This is not modeling to the rest of the craft world. Like the emperor has no clothes, you know, (laughs) that other people are looking at this and thinking someday I want to have a business like that. Well, (laughs) got to work on that. So were you, were you bringing in any money at all from Knitter's Review at that point? Well, like when you let go of that last freelance job, you didn't have, you didn't push for a renewed contract. You kind of said, okay, I'm going to commit to this. Was there a, um, was there any revenue coming in for Knitter's Um, Review? Yeah. At the, since the very beginning, I had, through the Amazon affiliate program, okay, which no longer operates in the state of Maine because they changed, they blah blah blah. But um, it so for many years, and that money I just put right back in the bank and used that to pay hosting costs. And I had also for a couple years, I had, I was, um, I created knitting themed note cards which was an idea before it's time. (laughs) Um, Really beautiful photographs that combine yarn and nature, you know, that's, that's the elevator pitch for it. And I even, I went to uh, TNNA, our big trade show. And I set up, I had a lot of wholesale clients, like over 80 or a hundred, you know, it took off at the beginning, but then I realized in order to continue doing this, they're going to expect me to go back to the printer with new cards right. twice a year. And it wasn't, that was another kind of a deciding point where like that would have pulled me away from where my heart really was. Mm-hmm. So I didn't go down that road. And it was also confusing people like, what are you, a uh, online newsletter or <laughs> no card maker? Well, it's really funny because it sounds like my life because I make weaving looms and that's the most lucrative thing that I do in the handmade. Like I'm a writer, but I barely write for my, <laughs> for my website and I'm, and I, I've saved the good stuff for like the newspaper, but then I, my column ended last year. So I haven't really put that down anywhere. <laughs> 
<laughs> but, oh, but, but, yeah. it's, but I totally get what you're saying, though, because you were doing the note cards to kind of put more inject revenue into the other project that you really wanted to do. So you decided that you were not going to be producing note cards twice a year to finance your newsletter. Yeah, well, and it, it took seed money that was not, you know, you have to bring back a certain amount in order to put it back into your business, right. but also pay yourself. And it, it, it wasn't, I don't know, I just saw like, oh, I would have to really just go down that road. No, I can't, don't want to do that. So I still have about, I've written them off, but I have about 10,000 note cards in a storage unit up in, <laughs> up in rural Maine if anybody wants them. Um, and that's okay. That's every single thing I learned so much from, you know, I don't, there are right. no regrets in this. Um, but at the same time, people started approaching me saying, we would love to advertise in Knitters Review. And that was a hard thing to think about at the beginning because the whole premise is these are unbiased product reviews. Right. But at the beginning, it was a lot of um, yarn stores wanted to advertise. And like, well, that's fine. I'm not writing about yarn stores. And so for many years, advertisers provided vital, vital, vital support to Knitter's Review. And they enabled me to do what I did. Hats off to all those people who understood. I mean, I, I had somebody else even manage the ad so that I had no communication with these people from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, fast forward to this year, kind of what started to happen, the more deeply I became embedded in this industry, the harder that distance was to maintain. Um, and so for other, I, I, because other things have grown and developed and uh, that makes sense. And I can explain them if you want to. I don't want to bore your readers. But <laughs> uh, in January, I announced that Knitter's Review would be ad-free again. So that was a big step back toward having no real or even perceived influence on what I write. And it, it was it was getting harder for me to write because I just felt I, I, these businesses that are putting their money on the line for what I say, really it's for my readers, but I just, I felt, I started to feel more and more pressure that was interfering with my ability to write anything. And so, so that was the biggest change that happened this year, which is really, really, from my perspective, beautiful and freeing. So. Well, and then the logical follow-up question to that is how are you financing this without, <laughs> <laughs> well, says the woman who makes looms. It doesn't yeah. have to well, do you remember that Powerball drawing a few weeks ago? <laughs> you no. were one of them. Oh, my gosh. So what island did you purchase over there? <laughs> I bought Namoskoto Tabakakawiak Island. That's what they're all named. No. Um, well, what happened was a few years ago, a colleague named Eugene Wyatt approached me. I, for several years, different people, we'd kind of talk vaguely about, well, there should be a Clara Parks yarn because you know so much about it. Like, this is the next step. Mm -hmm. But it was always a little tricky because it was with established yarn companies that had their own system of how they needed to do business. Right. And it didn't necessarily translate to how I was envisioning things. But Eugene Wyatt approached me, and he has this amazing flock of Saxon Merino sheep in New York State, just north of New York City. 
And he said, I have a bale. I, right now I have more wool than I actually need. Would you be? He actually just put three dots at the end of that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and as any fine, I mean, I know this is with knitters, but probably with all crafters, when someone offers you like the absolute primo caviar access to the best you're like yes please even right if and you're even if you have to put it in your living room you're right. like well, yes of course I want that yes and in this case it was a 676 pound bale of scoured wool wow which is it's about the size of a couch and when you cut the wires and open it up it explodes to and your whole this, living room Right. And this would create thousands of skeins of yarn. That sounds amazing. <laughs> so I thought, well, I don't need thousands of skeins of yarn. No, don't go there. But I had been wanting to kind of get my fingers into mills, primarily in the United States. Oh, yeah. Just to see, like, you can review something, but if you haven't really had a hand in the industrial manufacture of it, you're not coming from a completely educated and authentic place. I've started to feel that way. Like, I don't want to be the restaurant critic who doesn't know how to boil an egg. Um, <laughs> like, I can spin yarn by hand, but all, I guess it would be more the restaurant critic who's never worked in a big kitchen, so they don't have empathy for all the logistical challenges that are presented in right. one perfect dish. So I bought the bale, and I put together a program where I would split this bale up into four big lots and each of them would go to a different U.S. mill and I would go with them and we would meet the people and we would see the equipment and we would hear their story and we would watch these fibers turn into yarn. And then in three cases, we also took the fibers to a dyer. There was a natural dyer, a verb for keeping warm out in Oakland, California. <laughs> um, or my friend Jennifer Heverly, Spirit Trail, the uh, the treadmill <laughs> walking book reading. Yes. <laughs> Or the fledgling Saco River Dye House. And it, I thought, oh, I could do all this in six months, no problem, <laughs> which is not true. So it took a year, and people subscribed. And if you subscribed at a, a certain level, you actually received skeins of what we were talking about. And it was an amazing experience to go to the farm on shearing day and look these animals in the eye you know, and watch the people whose livelihoods depend on the well-being of these animals and mm -hmm. the fiber they produce and to follow them to the scouring plant in Texas, one of two remaining large-scale commercial scourers left in the United States, and to go to these mills and hear their stories um, and to find out their challenges. And, and the I've got to tell you, when you go from making something by hand to... <laughs> <laughs> watching it on a commercial machine it's it's like going from a little casio keyboard that has maybe one octave on it <laughs> to a church organ it, it it's mesmerizing but also kind of addicting mm -hmm. and so from that when that project ended i realized i wanted to do more of this i wanted to find more farmers with really interesting flocks and to be able to say to them i will buy your whole clip you don't have to worry about it this year. Your flock is viable. You know, your feed is paid for, the vet bills are paid for, and make yarn out of it and release it on a website, Clara Yarn. And not Clara's yarn because it's not possessive. I don't own it. <laughs> <laughs> I am I'm the vehicle for it. And and I put it up there 
and I tell the story and you meet the people and then when it's gone, it's gone and we move on to the next adventure. That's so really cool. It's it's tremendous fun. And that has finally been a way that I can also support my writing um, that feels very authentic to me. And it's something I'm genuinely passionate about. And I feel like I'm, I'm bringing something good and worthwhile into the world, not just like gratuitous. I don't even know what, but it's, it's something I feel really good about. So that's, that's what's going on right well, now. Well, that's great. So that, and that, and so you do that once a year, then you sell one batch of yarn. Oh, or, oh is, it, or is it ongoing? <laughs> it's ongoing. Okay. I was going to say, that would be really hard to stretch that out. So for, <laughs> I, I'm just amazed. I'm like, wow, that's well, really a super flock. A, a whole year. <laughs> no, it's, um, I, my vision was kind of, if I could make six yarns a year, I'd be happy somewhere between four and six. And I've, I've brought a huge batch of exquisite Shetland wool over from the UK, had it spun at Harrisville in New Hampshire. And that was a phenomenal yarn. And then I peel away some of those skeins and I send them to hand dyers and, and each hand dyer has a different technique and mm -hmm. it changes the qualities of the yarn when it comes back from them. So it's, it, that is really, really fun. I have a new batch of yarn coming back from hand dyers right now. The problem is becoming supply because I'm, um, I'm finding, um, it goes very quickly, like within hours or like I have a, a few hundred skeins of beautiful hand dyed yarn. And when I put them up, it'll probably be about 14 minutes and which oh, is wow. like, yay, what a problem. But it's, I feel bad because I feel bad for all the people who come to the site and see that it's already sold out and they will forget this. This is I'm just like I have my situation with Keto Keto. Do you know Keto Keto? 101 cookbooks. I'm, um, I'm not super familiar. No. Oh, it's in the food world, but it's um, something that, I thought really translated well to what I'm trying to do, but she also works with local, um, what do you want to say? Local artisans. And, you know, she gets like a beautiful vintage handmade knives, um, from, I can't remember. She's gone to Japan. It's Heidi Swanson. She's San Francisco culinary legend. Hi, Heidi. Um, but she's doing this, a similar kind of a pop-up store for the food world. And I, 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 every time I go to her site and see that something is sold out, I think, Oh God, this is what it feels like. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So you're trying to, so are you looking to try to make this create more yarn or what are you thinking? Well, but see, that's the problem because when, once you, first of all, the, the supplies, there aren't enough to, to fulfill that. And then you become this mass market producer and right. you lose and that. That's really... not the point of what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, that's, that's what I'm grappling with right now. But um, it's really, really gratifying to see greater public interest in materials that have a far deeper backstory to them, whether they were made in the US or in the UK or in France or Japan or wherever. Um, that's, that's a really gratifying thing to see. Is it amazing to you? Like, are you kind of like, whoa, I can't believe, like, I didn't expect this would be the answer to funding my writing. No. And, and what kind of what makes me laugh about the whole thing is that I'm the world's most reluctant entrepreneur. And this, I've just, I fought it 
every step of the way. He, he, I sat on his proposal for months, just like, no, I can't. I, I, and maybe it's just cause I'm a Taurus and I'm stubborn and change is diff. I don't know what, but, um, I, it just, it, it kind of presented itself to me and there became a point where I realized I have to grab this before it evaporates because it's so clear and it's, it's offering itself to me. And it would be arrogant to to refuse it, and just just out of stubbornness for how things have been done. Mm-hmm. And the, the world doesn't mind. I I guess I just had a like, I worried that I was letting people down by changing in some way, which is such the wrong way to look at things. You know, when you you forget to focus on your heart and you start to focus externally, it's mm-hmm. always a always a dangerous sign. Can you tell a little bit about that story of what led you into book publishing? Oh, it was, it was beautiful. (laughs) Um, Basically, it started because I have this annual gathering, the Knitter's Review retreat every fall. And I, it was still like not many people knew about Knitter's Review. And and I just had a really hard time asking people. (laughs) I have a hard time asking for help. Hmm, nobody has that experience. Um, And so I, we needed to bring in more teachers because I had more people than could fit in one class. And I, instead of reaching out and asking other people, I thought, well, what could I teach? And I thought, well, the only thing I really, what could I re- you know, I can't teach about, I, I could, but like, I'm not the person to teach about steaks or color work, but yarn, I could actually teach a class all about yarn. And so I, I sat down and wrote kind of an outline of what the class would be. And I taught it. And that was the exact, it, it was so kind of, you know, when you set something in motion and it's, it's perfect, mm-hmm. it's like complete right out of the box. And so, yes, if you read the book, you'll read the story of kind of some other things that happened around this, which it ironically tried to sort of steer me in a different direction. But really all that happened was I got a phone call from uh, Rosie No at Random House. She said, we're starting up an imprint called Potter Craft. I'm sure you get these phone calls all the time. <laughs> and you're like, yes. you're like, yes, yes, I, I do. In fact, I yes, have a call on the other me. line right now. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Norton's on the line. Gotta go. <laughs> no, but I, I actually had, there were some other ones that I like, as heartbreaking as it was, I had to say no to. But so I pretended like, oh yeah, 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 I do. But um, she said, would you ever consider writing for us? And, and what, what book would is, you know, in your heart that is ready to come out. And I said, well, a big, beautiful book all about yarn. And she said, great. All right. This is how we need a proposal. This, this, and this. I love it. What else do you want to write? So I gave her another idea. Great. Put it in the proposal. And, and so like, yeah, sitting at my kitchen table, looking out over the field, uh, pretending like this was perfectly normal. I kind of hung up the phone with the outlines of a, a two book deal with an option for a third with Random House. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm sorry. I keep laughing about it because it was, um, yeah. So then like business got in the way and I realized, wow, I really need an agent because I'm not good at the business part of this. And a wonderful woman named Linda Rogar just fell in my lap. And she was my agent for that first, the first three books with Random House. And yeah, that was, it was one book every two years. First, it was the Knitter's Book of Yarn and then the Knitter's Book of Wool because I really wanted to go into all the different breeds mm-hmm. that we're starting to see in yarn and how 
like the more you know about it, the less you're likely to criticize the yarn for doing something wrong when it's not the yarn's fault. It's what it is, you know, <laughs> right, right. like, why does this rye flour taste so bitter? Well, duh, it's rye flour. So, um, and then came the Knitter's Book of Socks really because there was this event called the Sock Summit and Stephanie Pearl McPhee said, could you tailor any of your classes to a sock audience? And so I thought, well, this is a really, you know, this is a shtick. But then I researched it and found all these really cool old reference books from the 30s to the 50s about hosiery manufacturing and abrasion resistance and, you know, strength and different stitches. And so I realized there was a whole book in there about matching yarn to high wear garments such as socks. And that was a third of the Knitter's Book of series. So you just were on a roll. <laughs> so you didn't really start with just one. You were like, "All right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go for I'm going to go for three right off the blocks." Uh. <laughs> I don't. I guess I like I, I I've never had a child, so this is a horrible thing to say, but I like being pregnant with a book. That sounds weird. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I've had I've had two children, and I'd like to be pregnant with a book too. So I can I can understand. <laughs> no, I understand. And pregnancy sometimes isn't isn't the greatest experience. Stay and so is being pregnant with a book. Sometimes <laughs> yeah, right. it's like God. It's, their natural gestation is nine months and books could be like 16 months. Right. Ah, right. Do you have a sixth book in the hopper? Or are you pregnant with a book right now? <laughs> is it too soon to share? Are you pregnant with a book right now? <laughs> um, I can't share, but yeah, I may have just sent off my next book proposal. Oh, wow. Good for you. But this is a different, this is, this I'm excited about. It's, it's shifting gears a bit and uh, celebrating a lot of other really great voices in the knitting world. So I'm, I'm happy about cool. it. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So is this circling back to what inspired one of the books that inspired you in the first place? <laughs> um, from a different perspective, she okay. said. Okay. All right. In I a very opaque way. Okay. I won't push any further. Well, so let's talk about Knitlandia and what can, what can people expect from this book? They can expect just um, a wonderful kind of armchair travel, but with a knitting bent that is celebrating basically the, the last 15 years with Knitter's Review, I've gotten to go to a lot of places mm -hmm. and see them with a unique perspective, either just as a complete civilian or, you know, behind the scenes at a trade show or teaching and speaking at an event. And so the stories in this book are they're the stories of these events and these places and these people and these monuments and these traditions. You know, what is the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival? How does it actually feel to go there? Or the New York Sheep and Wool Festival at Rhinebeck? Or, you know, when you go to TNNA, the trade show, how do you even get in? And what are some of the funny rituals and things that have happened along the way? So you, you really come with me to to experience these landmarks and legends of our collective knitting world. We go to Iceland. We get naked in the hot springs together. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious about who inspires you with this. I mean, who did you read to get to the point where you could document a trip to a knitting retreat and captivate people with it? How did, who taught you how to do that? A lot of work and practice, but I'm a huge fan. I mean, everybody from E.B. White or St. E.B. White, like <laughs> um, who lived, his farmhouse was just over the hill a few miles from mine. 
Oh, wow. Um, have you, to, have you been there? I've driven by it. Yes. I know somebody who gets to trim the apple trees on his property. Oh, cool. That's as close as I've been. But, um, I'm a huge, huge fan of travel writing. Jan Morris and Paul Theroux are probably my two biggest, biggest heroes. I just love how they, and I'm so glad that you said that about, this is not about like neener, neener. This is what you missed. No, not at all. Come, come with me. Yes. Come with me. Look out the window. Yeah. 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 Look at these people. Did you see that street? Let's walk down this one. Um, well, in the detail, because at, at the, the one you wrote about um, Squam, you at one point say that the cabin you stayed in was 53 feet from the lake. And and I just thought to myself, well, that's pretty. I mean, that's something I would ask. I'd be like, well, so how far technically are we? <laughs> but how? Did, I was curious. I'm like, OK, so did somebody say that was it in a brochure or did you ask? Um, I was looking at the map. Okay. Of all the different properties, partly because I had taken the kayak out and I'd written down names of different cottages that like, well, that one looks small. Maybe I could rent that one when I come back. So I was looking at it from that perspective. And then I saw that they listed for every single cottage, how far away it was from, from the shoreline. I'm just curious about when you're in the moment and you're on these, you're traveling and you're experiencing this, you're kind of engaged in the moment, but are you taking copious notes as you're in the moment or do you research before and after and then fill in the blanks on the way home? Oh, that's a really tricky one because the more notes you take, the less present you are exactly. in the moment. Um, so I'd say it's, it's spurts of high attentiveness followed by writing things down. Okay. And so the, the fishing trophies, that was a conversation. I'm thinking it was either with Casey Forbes. I think it might've been Casey or Isolde, one of them. And I think Casey was the one who had noticed the for trying <laughs> one of the guys, everybody else was like, he got a 42 foot bass, not feet, whatever. <laughs> and then this one was just for trying. Oh my goodness. Which is um, almost like a, you know, maybe not, <laughs> that's hilarious, but I don't know if I'd want that award. <laughs> I know. Seriously. Like, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Maybe. Question I'm mark? sure there's a total story behind it. Oh, so yeah. then it became like the next, in the next couple of days. Ooh, I, that was actually a really interesting thing. Let me go back and take some notes on that. Okay. Yeah, because I know that that's one thing that working as a journalist, a lot of my writing has not included me in it, at least the stuff mm -hmm. I got paid for at the newspaper uh, for mm -hmm. the most part. And um, I love that you're present in all the work, you know, that you're writing these books and you're present in the story. And that's really, really cool. I think it's fun. You can be the tour guide. In a way, I mean, I'm trying not, like I didn't, that, that was actually a real challenge for me because the first three books were very like, I wasn't in it because it wasn't well, right, about me. Right, because it's about subject matter. Right. Yeah. Right. And so it, it it's, I, I was really aware of trying not to be like, hey guys, let's go to Iceland. <laughs> so I wore this dress. It was really cute. Here's a picture of my suitcase. <laughs> Like, yeah, I would say that was not the voice in my head that I heard. <laughs> Just trying to trying to be, you know, the, yeah. the companionable right narrator. the person that you're not going to get want to like push out of the the, <laughs> the train car, you know, after shortly after meeting them. Um, yeah. yeah, well, I the way you opened this um, was really I love when I'm surprised by things, um, and uh, you're the, just when you write at the very beginning. Uh, you know, your preface to this book is quite, some people skip things like that. And I'm like, never mm. skip that. Cause it's, mm. it's kind of vital. I want to ask you, would you be willing to read a little bit of that? No, I would be honored. You're going to, you're walking with me through my house. 
down the hallway to get the copy of my book, which I put on the bookshelf next to the others. Just That's so cool. To stare at it and say, oh, wow. <laughs> All right, the preface, and I called it In Motion. When I was six, I went with my mother on a run to the grocery store. Too busy to fiddle with the garage door when we got back, she parked the car in the driveway and went inside, letting me snooze as she often did. Eventually, I woke up, unbuckled myself, and came in for lunch. A few minutes later, a man in uniform knocked on her door and said, Your car is on fire. A plume of smoke billowed from the frame of what had been, until a few minutes earlier, our trusty VW bus. A fuel line must have snapped, they said, spilling gasoline onto the still-hot engine until it ignited. All four tires had melted, and the windows had shattered into a million tiny pieces. You'd think the experience would have put me off cars completely. Strangely enough, it didn't. If anything, it only reinforced my desire to set the wheels in motion, as if the real danger were in sitting still. I grew up with grand road trips, coast-to-coast -coast adventures in unreliable cars, playing mad libs and counting license plates. After my parents' divorce, my mother moved us to Tucson, where we found smaller ways to escape. Some weekends, after giving up on waiting for a boyfriend to call, she'd mutter a curse and load us into the car. Windows open, we chased the sunset down Speedway Boulevard until the streetlights and sidewalks gave way to empty desert and the tall shadows of saguaros. We snaked our way up, 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 until a sudden sharp left took us over Gates Pass. Ahead, the view opened up to nothingness. Back down the mountain we went to an empty desert floor. We'd find a spot and pull over. The moment the car went silent, the desert took over. A brilliant city of lights unfolded in the sky above as our eyes grew accustomed to the darkness. My mother would lie on the hood of the car. My brothers and I, like rattlesnakes, preferred the warmth of blacktop on the empty road. The desert air smelled sweet and exotic. Lying there, my entire area of vision was filled with stars. At any minute, it felt like gravity would reverse and the sky would suck me in. I'd fall up, up, up into the cosmos. Eventually, my mom would call to us and we'd get back to the car. As soon as we drove back through Gates Pass, the lights of Tucson would twinkle in the distance, like jewels on black velvet beckoning us home. We hadn't gone far, but that brief interlude away, even just over the pass, fulfilled my need to wander. All there right. you go. That's so beautiful. And your reading voice is fantastic as well. So pe more people have to invite you to read. Do you do a lot of readings? <laughs> um, yeah, that's I'm doing more of them. Uh, switching from a reference book where readings aren't very right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Reference books don't translate. They have great information, but um, it's like gather round, folks. We're gonna go through pages twenty-five to thirty. <laughs> right. Cast on ninety-two stitches. Do you have any idea how many trips you've gone on for your in your life as um, the powerhouse behind Knitter's Review? Is many, <laughs> do you travel all the time? I used to travel. It really was um, every, I set the limit at, I had to have one weekend at home between trips. Oh, wow. That's so a lot it, of traveling. It is. 
And and that's kind of the challenge in the knitting world is one of the the natural career paths. And I don't. This is probably true in other craft realms as well. But one of the like one of the only career paths is you travel and you teach. Mm-hmm. And so I did that for several years, and it really was every other week getting on a plane and going somewhere else. And you tend to teach from Thursday to Sunday, and you fly home on a Monday, and you recover on Tuesday. You do your work on Wednesday and pack, and Thursday you leave or you have a week at home and it just, um, it, it wears on you that it's some people are really good at it and they love it and they get fed from it. And I, I found, um, it, it, it really, it got to me. So for the last couple of years, I've been pulling back on the travels for teaching mm-hmm. and just to let other people do it instead. Um, but writing this book, I wanted to celebrate the other potential for traveling in this industry, that you don't have to just be going to a yarn store, teaching to a group, that, that it can be for the experience's sake and for meeting people and collecting stories and sharing them. This book would not have been possible without no, all those tired days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and now I'm planning the tour. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so you yeah. kind of yeah, so you have to gear up. Um, and for the yeah. tour, where are you going to be stopping for your tour? Um, it's it's actually going to be a pretty quick tour. The launch party is in Somerville, Massachusetts. My brother is a bean to bar chocolate maker. He has Somerville chocolate in, oh, wow. right outside of Boston, cool. and he's in this really cool food incubator space that used to be an old envelope factory. And his neighbor ha- is a brewery. So we're having a big launch party there on the 16th. And then I go to the Strand, the Rare Books Room at the Strand in New York City. And then uh, Loop Yarn, Craig Rosenfeld, old, wonderful buddy in Philadelphia. And then from there, heading up to Church Mouse in Seattle. And then Powell's in Portland. And ending at Stitches West in Santa Clara. At the oh, awesome. Over for Keeping Warm booth. Yeah. That's really cool. So you have, um, is that all going to happen right in a row? Are you just, yeah. You're just going from one place to the other? Yes. All right. Well, you're not going to make yourself unpack uh, at home and just go. And how many days, how long is this going to take you? I started on a Tuesday and I get back probably on a Monday. And then Wednesday I'm headed to the Knitting in the Hills retreat in Texas. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So there's February for you. No, but it's, it's I'm. I'm I'm excited to be traveling with this book because I'm I, I love the stories and I also wanted people to have something. I know you get a lot of like really you want to spend a weekend going to a sheep and wool festival from the people that you love, right? Right. Or, and and so I wanted them to have something they could hand to this person that they love to say, look, read this. This explains our culture. This explains why I'm so engaged in doing what I do. Just read it. And then, you know, reevaluate your question. Are you really going to give me a hard time for wanting to take a trip to Iceland or to go to the Edinburgh Yarn Festival? So I, it was my hope was to kind of translate our collective culture into something that non-knitters would, they would finally see and appreciate. It would translate it to people who otherwise might not quite get why we do what we do. I don't know if there's anything else that you would like people to know about your book or the Knitter's Review or anything. This is preaching to the choir, but just to be 
fully confident in the validity and legitimacy of your passion, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, um, to, to trust your gut and trust your instinct. And if, if you are putting your soul in the glove compartment, there is a way that, you know, if you just patient and you really keep your mind open to it, the universe does have a sort of benevolence to it that, mm-hmm. that That's true. I really I do believe that there will be a way out if that's where you are and you can't stay there you know so mm-hmm. just trust in it um and I'm here to tell you I'm I'm 20 miles ahead on the trail here to say that it's it's really really beautiful so keep going so thank you so much for your oh. contributions not only to the knitting world but for being an inspiring writer as well and I want to make sure that people who are not familiar with everything you're doing, obviously they can sign up for uh, the Knitter's Review. It's a pretty wonderful publication. And that you're publishing how often now? I'm publishing when the when the word needs to go out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And people will know because if they subscribe, mm-hmm. they'll get a, um, some notification that, that there's something new. I promise you're not going to get an email every day saying, hey, guys, I sneezed. Here's a link. <laughs> But really, when not. when I discover something that I think people would really enjoy reading about, that's when I'll send it out. So right. a couple times a month. Okay, excellent. And then um, <laughs> if you also are, do you also blog? I have a, a secret blog, clarawindow.blogspot.com, that I haven't updated in a while, but that goes more into the food side of things okay. and recipes. Okay, which uh, knitters have to eat. So Exactly. There's so. the world's greatest buttermilk biscuits recipe and granola. Oh, excellent. Okay. So people can check that out. And then mm-hmm. uh, if they want to get your yarn, they... ClaraYarn.com. Okay. And yeah. what you the best thing to do, it sounds like, is sign up for that, subscribe, like to be a subscriber to that so you can get word that you're dropping some yarn. And they yeah. Can, they have to act fast. <laughs> Very fast. I'm trying now to do advanced, like you'll get an email saying, hey, uh, in 12 hours, this is happening. So you again, you won't, your email will not be filled with messages, but if you do get one, open it because it means something is happening. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Thank you. Me too. Okay. (laughs) Bye. Bye. A special thanks to Clara Parks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And I had a great time just hearing the story. It was very inspiring. Clara is someone I featured in Craft Sanity Magazine issue 10. I invite you to head over to craftsanity.com for links to Clara's site and her yarn and her blog and her newsletter so you can find all those links over at craftsanity.com and if you're interested in checking out issue 10 of the magazine you can order printed copies through my etsy shop craftsanity.etsy.com and there's a pdf version there as well and the pdf is also available for instant download directly from my website so i invite you to check that out And I want to give a quick uh, shout out again to the folks at ACS Home and Work for supporting the show. I really appreciate your sponsorship. And Patreon sponsors, thank you so much for keeping the show going. I really do appreciate it. Okay, folks, I hope you guys have fun making whatever you're making right now. I'm going to be headed off to the Midwest Craft Con, and I will give you a full report when I get back. Keep an eye on my Instagram feed for updates at Craft Sanity, and I'm excited about the stories I'm going to find there. So I better get packing and finish up all the work I have to do before I can leave town. I'll be back soon. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at CraftSanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at CraftSanity.etsy.com. Mm-hmm.
Same time next week will be crap.